Love this podcast? Support this show through the Acast Supporter feature. It's up to you how much you give and there's no regular commitment. Just hit the link in the show description to support now. This is Starship Sofa. Everybody, welcome, hello, and welcome to show 189. I am your host, Tony C. Smith. Hello, everyone. Hope everyone is fine and dandy. Guess what? We have got a Hugo-nominated story coming up today as well. And we have Writers of the Future. Big interview with all the winners over there at Writers of the Future. And we have our fantastic Amy H. Sturgis. So, there you go. Jumping straight in with all that. Let's crack on with this fantastic interview. This was taking place in, you know, in Hollywood there. And I had all the writers of the future around one table. So just please enjoy this. And there will be a link on to Pop Over to Writers of the Future because there is that book coming out now where all these stories are in there. And hopefully in the future we'll get to play some of those stories as well. So I'm very proud to have Mr. John Goodwin. As you know, John has been on the show once before. I think you have, John, anyways. You are head of Correct. Galaxy Press. Wow, what a what a yes. title. Head of Galaxy Press. And you've just had your Writers of the Future competition once again. You had the winners and you've had have you had, John, the big party? Absolutely. Last night was the release event and it was absolutely incredible. The um the the venue where we had our event was the location of the very first Oscars and uh the hall was transformed and it was better than we've ever had it before. I think the winners will each talk about their own experience on that. But it was um truly a memorable experience. One of the things that we did that was a bit different this year, we tried to combine as many muses as possible to show the, the value of creativity. So in addition to the writing and the illustration, we added uh, the last few years dance, and then this year we added a fourth where we had a singer coming in too. So um, and then we took another little thing on that where made little dance vignettes on four of the stories, but didn't tell the, the uh, writer winners that was happening and so that added to the already stressful <laughs> moment of having to speak to have somebody just transform not only was their story illustrated it was actually a dance that's choreographed against the story so it um, that made for some nice uh, additional responses that from the audience as well as from the uh, winners themselves it was an amazing night oh that's lovely and I'm going to put you on the spot here as well John is there a chance we might be able to play one or two of these stories when, when they come out in this book Absolutely. In fact, uh, we'll work out whichever ones because I, I think a book, I'll be able to get a book sent to you. Since you have a Kindle, you'll have that very rapidly. Yes. Yeah, just uh, trust yourself. <laughs> exactly, exactly. And, uh, oh, we'd we'll, we'll we'll love to get some played on the show as well, you know what I mean? Give everyone a chance to kind of listen to what, what you are kind of, you know, picking out there. 
So the way we're going to work. We'll also have it also online at uh, com, where they'll be able to see the, the whole event and these dances I've been talking about. All right. Well, I'll tell you what. I'll get the link off you. If you can send us a link after the show, then you know I'll put it up on my website as well, and then people can go over from Starship Sova and have a little look, see what's going on there, because I haven't had a chance yet. I was telling you, I'm just swamped with this new job. So I'll certainly pop over there as well. So Perfect. Me, me and John's been talking, and how we're going to work this is we've got what we've got one headset mic over there. In John, are you still in based in Hollywood? Is that where you're, you're talking from right. now? Yeah, we're right now, um, right here on Hollywood Boulevard, about a block away from the Chinese Man Theater and the Kodak Theater, and across the street from the Roosevelt Hotel, which was where the awards ceremony was taken. Right. So that's just fun. That's just you know what I mean. That's fantastic. So what we've got yeah. though, we've got. We've got four guests we're going, to have, we're going to have a little chat with, but we've got one headset mic. So we're going to be whipping the headset mic off John and passing it to someone else. So, John, let's see if we can get through this. John, honestly, thank you for coming on the show and, you know, bringing these new writers to Starship Sova. It's amazing. Thank you. Can, John, do you mind passing me? We'll, we'll speak with Brennan Harvey, if that's possible. Brennan Harvey, here we go. Hi, my name is Brennan Harvey. Hey, Brennan. Nice of you to come on Starship Sofa. Listen, congratulations. Oh, thank you very much. Um, it's been an amazing experience. Yes, I, well, I, I, honestly, it must be. Is Brennan, have you been Have you been actually writing long? I have been writing since 1998. Um, I've been working on the contest. I, my first entry was in 2004, first quarter, um, and I finally won first quarter 2010. Um, for a total of nine submissions, right? Yeah, and this is something I'm, I'm quite keen to find out. But if you've won this competition now, are you allowed to next year to to enter again, or is that it? You've had your, you've had your shot, and you you can't enter no more. No, I'm done. Um, the contest is open to non-professionals. Um, this is my first professional publication, and I am no longer qualified to um, play again. However, if you have a... Well, winning the contest disqualifies you. If you have a novel published, you're disqualified. If you have four professional publications, you're disqualified. Other than that, you're considered a non-professional writer, and you are able to, to join and, uh, and, and submit. So, let's see, let's see if we can work this out. You, you wrote your story, you get it sent off, and what did you think there when you popped the, the competition in the post? Did you have any idea that you know, you'll be at Hollywood pretty soon? Well, no. <laughs> I have, like I said, this was my ninth submission, um, and I have been trying and trying and trying, and the contest is, it, it generates quality people. And I knew that if I didn't ever win, um, that I ha would have made it. And I'm just kind of still overwhelmed that I'm here and that someday someone's going to come up and say, you know what, yeah, we made a mistake, sorry. <laughs> Without giving too much away, Brendan, tell us a little bit about your story. Uh, my story is about a washed-up reporter who discovers that a conspiracy theory concerning the government on the moon is true and her investigation to uncover it. Well, listen, Brennan, honestly, a big congratulations. You know what I mean? I, I just know the kind of numbers that are in there trying to go for this competition. You know, good luck with your, your future writing. Thank you so much for coming on Starship Sova. If you don't mind, if you could pass over to Patty Jansen, please. Sure, no problem. Thank you for uh, taking the time to talk to me. Oh, listen, no problem at all. Here's Patty. 
Hello, it's Patty Johnson. Hey, Patty. Nice of you to come on Starship Sofa. <laughs> yeah, thank you. Oh, they listen, lovely. So, Patty, tell us what it was like then to when when the 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 winning envelope dropped through on your floor. Was it? Did you have some kind of sneaky feeling that this was a good story and yet you, you stood a good chance of winning, or was it just did it come just out of the blue? Well, I had a a, um, a published fine or oh, a um, non-winning finalist before in the previous quarter, and I thought this particular story was actually better than the previous one. So I wouldn't say I had a feeling, but um, I wrote the story in only about three weeks and finished and sent it off. And I really liked the story, so I was hoping that it would have a good chance. But um, of course, you never know these things for certain. And uh, when I I did everything through email because um, not being in the US, I had um, um, I just put my email address on the entry, so all the notifications were through email. But when um, um, Joni rang me up, I almost knew um, that it was going to be her because no one rings punctual at 9 a.m. on a Tuesday morning <laughs> other than someone who's been waiting all of the U.S. weekend to ring me up. <laughs> so, um, yeah, that was basically how it went. So, so you've won this, and I'm just trying to get my head round as well. Has Galaxy Press now, just you know, because you're the winner, shipped you over there to Hollywood? Is this... Is that how it happened? That is, that is true, and it's, uh, it's uh, actually quite unbelievable. Um, <laughs> I, I tell my neighbours that, and they go, "Really, really? <laughs> it's it's it is unbelievable." It is just it, you know, like what an amazing competition to do that. Some you know to to write for you to just write a short story. I'm not you know belittling your short story, but you write a short story, then all of a sudden you're ending up in Hollywood. Do you know what I mean? The outcome of it that's just an amazing, amazing thing. It is. It is, and I've never been to the U.S., um, and so, you know, to be able to say to the lady at the post office, oh, I won't be here next week, will you hold my mail, I'm going to be in Hollywood, <laughs> oh, you got to milk that all for all you can. <laughs> so, Paddy, what, I, I, I know you, you can't really do, like, professional writing to win this competition, but so what's your dear job, then? Um, well, I... Uh, well, I used to be a research scientist. Uh, when my um, uh, my organization had some, um, you know, restructuring, um, and they ended the project I was working for, my husband, who works in IT, um, wanted to uh, move to Sydney, where I knew there wouldn't be any uh, any employment for me. So I started an internet bookshop. I sold and published nonfiction for a long time and I kept that going but just lately I've been sort of building that um, down a little bit because I'm more interested in writing um, because I'm more interested um, in inter in being involved with uh, things the kids do and doing things with them seeing they're now all teenagers and they can actually do things with you instead of you just running around after them <laughs> so that's what I've been doing can you remember, you know, the, like your story, can you just remember starting it off, you know, that, that first blank page and just, you know, I'm not saying once upon a time, but, you know, them first few lines, is that all that still vivid in your memory? Well, what was actually more vivid in my memory was uh, walking through the office supply store where it was very busy in January, um, it being just before the start of our new school year. 
uh, my kids needed some um, you know, books and things for school, and I saw this pair of scissors hanging on the on the uh, racks, and they had a very unusual colour, and I thought they're cool scissors. I've got to have them, and I I took them down, and I saw they were made out of titanium. Which was the the scissors were the um, inspiration for the story. So I do remember very clearly sitting down afterwards, getting onto Wikipedia and finding out all about this weird stuff called titanium. And um, from there on, I uh, started the story. I don't actually remember writing the first line of it. I didn't consciously sit down and say, now I'm going to write a story. I just got all these cool ideas and they somehow morphed into a story. Well, honestly, Patty, that, that's lovely. Do you know what I mean? Can, just, can you give a little bit more about, without giving, you know, the, the, the ending or anything like that about your story, can you give a little bit more, you know, so my listeners can, can get a feel of what your story's about? Um, yeah, the story is about a um, human... Um, mission that has already been functioning on an alien planet where two of the native um, creatures I mean they sort of human like but not really um, have gone to war with each other in a kind of UN like way the the uh, mission which is a religious mission believes that they've got to stop this war um, and in the process of the story, the uh, main protagonist who is on the planet to um, find out whether or not this uh, particular project is worth uh, their continued funding um, has to work out why this um, whole war really happens. And that's without giving too much away. Well, honestly, Patty, honestly, I can't, you know, congratulations. It's just an amazing honour you've done there. You've won that. Thank you so much for coming on Starship so far. Thank you very much. Oh, you're more than welcome. Would you be kind enough to pass pass us over to Patrick O'Sullivan, please? Yes, okay. Here's Patrick. Uh, hello, this is Patrick O'Sullivan. Hey, Patrick, honestly, congratulations, sir. Thank you. Thank you very much. Oh, listen, what what an honour to come and to go away and, and win that store, mm. you know, win and win that award. Mm. It's just amazing. Tell us, Patrick, just you know, as well, because I'll get into a little bit of background about yourself, but. Your story. Tell us without giving. What well, I've just seen the party without giving the end in the way. What's your story about? Okay, uh, my story is uh, about a spelling bee. So, the thirteen-year-old uh, Maddie enters a spelling bee with the human kids, and her adoptive mother isn't there to look out for her. It gets better for her though when she meets Tan, Tan another contestant who isn't exactly, you know, the enchanter next door. Then all hell breaks loose. It, it's not literally all hell but <laughs> you get the idea and then her rather unconventional family has to put in a decent day's work setting things right so is this i'm, I'm not going to say this this is your first story of wrote, but is it this is kind of the, your first one you've entered for a competition or have you been entering competitions for a while now yeah, this is the second one that I entered in Writers of the Future. Uh, the first one received an honorable mention, and it was in, you know like rain on parched parched soil for me. It was the first uh, first positive feedback I got from a professional uh, venue, and it really came in an important time because I, I I was feeling like I was doing a lot of work and not getting anything uh, positive back, and then these guys came in and uh, kept me going basically. So I mean, uh, and then the next. I was going to say this must have spurred you on now, you know, winning this. This must have just totally elevated you now to, you know, to conquer the world. 
it's unbelievable. <laughs> um, I'm I'm still processing it. Right. I don't know. Uh, I don't know where. I need more time to think the whole thing through because it's it's just so unbelievably great that um, you know I, I'm really I know we're on radio or radio if this is audio I really don't have the words to describe it. <laughs> hey, honestly, Patrick, I'm, and I'm, I'm just, a writer. I'm just uh, <laughs> yes, <laughs> that's excellent. I'm chuffed a bit with you. You know what I mean? I just it's an amazing feat there. What's what's your background then, Patrick? I'm just curious to find out what your background is. Sure, uh, I'm an engineer by by trade. Um, on software, uh, internet software, enterprise management software, and so forth. And uh, I had a business that I sold a couple years ago, and it had a non-compete associated with the sale. So I had a year that I really couldn't work in my trade, so I decided I wanted to write a novel. And I wrote it, and it wasn't all that great. Um, so I decided I needed to, I really needed to write a good novel. So I uh, you know, applied myself to learn how um, and just went at it. And uh, you know, this is the f- the first big big thing for me, and it's like so enormously huge that you know I think everything else from here on down on going to be let down. <laughs> so <laughs> don't be no, not at all. So tell us, then, Patrick, what's what's your your plans now for the future for your writing? Well, I'm going to continue to I'm going to continue to write. I've got uh, I've written th- three novels. Uh, about 25 short stories, a couple novellas. I'm going to continue to submit those, and uh, just can keep keep working at it, right? Um, and this is just like uh, batteries are fully recharged right now, and I'm ready to go and take on the world. Thanks to writers of the future. Hey, well, honestly, Patrick, congratulations. You know, you sound like you're just totally overwhelmed by the whole thing, but you know, your story. Hopefully, we'll get to play some of the stories when I get a chance to play yours. You know, it's just amazing. Congratulations, sir. Well, thank you very much. Oh, you're more than welcome. Would you be kind enough to pass me over to Richard Johnson? Will do. Here we go. Tony. Hey, now Richard Johnson. Now he's been on my sh- he's been on my show once before. If anyone can remember, Richard had a flash bit of story in Starship Sofas, and it was entitled "A Friend in Need." So, Richard, hey, you've come on a long way. <laughs> I I have. Yeah, you gave me my start, Tony. Oh, I, I well, there was- you go. <laughs> <laughs> I, uh, you, you published me. I, I remember it. I was in between a, uh, a poem by Neil Gaiman and, and a fantastic story by Elizabeth Bear. I think, called, I think it was called Shoggoths in Bloom. Yes. And, oh, right. And, yes. Yeah. I was, in, I was in that issue. So to be in that kind of company was just, uh, was just amazing. So, Richard, I mean, obviously, you've, you've, I'm not saying you, you were poor there, but you've obviously come on leaps and bounds now. Because you are the, the overall, am I right in thinking you are the overall winner? Yep, yep. I was lucky enough to walk away with the gold award last night. So, yeah. Hey, wow. But tell us what it's like, Richard, and getting up on stage and you know <laughs> accept the gold, the you, gold award. You know, you know I re- I really can't tell you because a lot of it is just buying. <laughs> <laughs> the, be- the, be- the best way I can describe it, you, um, a lot of your listeners will be familiar with your reaction when oh. uh, <laughs> Starship Sofa won the Hugo, and and I I felt like that. I, it, it's a family show, so I, I won't say uh, you know what I really felt, but I was just uh, all the emotions were just turned up to eleven, and and I yeah, it was 
I don't know how long was I, I was on stage. It felt like just a few seconds, but I, I don't know. I, I'm going to have to go and watch the uh, the YouTube video and, and see what I actually said. <laughs> well, that's. Uh, I mean, I know exactly how you feel. Like you say, if anyone's seen that video of me jumping around like a blooming big daisy, there, you know what I mean? It was just <laughs> unreal. So honestly, congratulations. Thank so, you. When you were sitting in the audience, then Richard, did you not know anything then? Do you know? And, and you must have known you'd kind of won because they, they brought you over, but you hadn't known you'd won the gold. You know, like the kind of main overall winner no no I had no idea there, there were four of us up for the award and, and everybody was um, uh, we've been here for a week attending, attending the workshop and, uh, and no one gave away any kind of clue at all so yeah we, we were all just there waiting for the uh, for the envelope to be opened and, uh, and, and see who won on the, on the night so I mean this must have spurred John now to kind of conquer the world as well has it <laughs> absolutely yeah i mean the, the not just the the award itself last night was just was just the icing you know on the cake but we, we've been here for a, a whole week at, attending a workshop part of the prize of the, of the winning uh, the writers of the future contest is at, attending a workshop here in hollywood and and just uh having uh, listening to presentations by guys like uh, robert j sawyer and kevin j anderson and and then you know, meeting them in the bar for a beer afterwards and picking their brains, and yeah, it's just. Um, I think I think Patrick said it best. It's just my batteries are just fully recharged now, so it's going to go back and write like crazy. <laughs> just write like crazy. Oh well, listen, you know, Richard, that's just what a. It's just amazing, like, especially when you say that. It, exactly what Starship Solar was like when you know we kind of won the Hugo Award. I can just honestly picture you kind of jumping around there. Tell us a little bit then, Richard, about yours without because that's what I've been saying to everyone without giving yeah. the ending away or anything like that. What's your story about? Okay, I'm I'm gonna. Kevin J. Anderson wrote the uh, wrote the blurbs for the stories in in the book, so I'm just, he can describe it way better than I can. So I'm just going to read that out. Um, it's about a detective who's trying to solve a murder, where in a world where a godlike computer can reprogram reality itself at will. So he's he's just captured it there. That's that's better than I could ever, uh, uh, you know, better synopsis than I could ever come up with. Excellent. So listen, Richard, um, I'm not picking up an, an English accent with you. Where, where yeah, there's there's a hint of something else there as well. Where are you from? The, yeah, I, well, I've moved around moved around quite a bit. Now, I, I grew up in in Orton, which is a little village in Lancashire, and uh, but for the past ten years, I've been living in Melbourne, in Australia. Right. So I, I've got a, like this weird uh, sort of mixture of an accent, I guess. Well, it, it seems like Australia. You know what I mean? They're turning out some good science fiction writers there. <laughs> Yeah, yeah. Well, there's myself and myself and Paddy, and the, there was another winner uh, here from Perth, Ben Mann. So yeah, the, the Australians are are taking over. <laughs> <laughs> so, Richard, what are you going to stick with sh short stories then? Or have you got have you got the kind of the elusive novel in the back of your mind there that you're ready to kind of hit hit out with? Yeah. Well, well I've got a novel um, um, that's ongoing at the moment. It's it's not um it's not a genre novel. It's an action thriller. So I'm gonna I'm gonna go back to Melbourne and, and finish that off and um, I think there are still a few short stories that I, I have that are doing the rounds so I'm just going to keep those in circulation and, 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 and hope that I get a sale um, but um, yeah I think I'm, I'm, I'm geared up now to write a novel I'm, I, the, this short story that the one was actually um, uh, I'd always planned to write an, a novel but I knew that was going to take a lot of time so I thought well I'll, I'll um, get a short story using the, the sort of the, the concepts and the, the the sort of core mechanic that drives the plot in the, in the short story. Uh, I'll, I'll use that in it. Sorry, I'll use that in a short story, um, and then uh, get that out there and 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 see whether or not it uh, it has legs. Obviously, it has. So, so um, 
yeah, I'm going to try and write a novel, and it might be based on on the short story, or it might be something completely new. I'll just have to uh, see how I, how I go. You know what? I'm just I'm just thinking there as well, and it, it does. You know, especially you know, like say we've won that Hugo Award, but it does open doors. You know, and you'll be able to put on now on your kind of you know a little bit bio, you yeah, know, winner of the writers. Of, you know, you'd be surprised what yeah. You know, it, that's just an amazing feat. You know, honestly, congratulations. Yeah. Thank you very much. Yes, thank well, you. Is yeah, it just sorry, go on. Yeah, no, I was, I was, I was just going to say, yeah, it, it, um, not only that, but um, it, we've met so many people as as part of um, this workshop that um, you know it just expands your your connections. Like Kevin J. Anderson is coming out to Melbourne for a, for um, a book signing in uh, in June, um, so. Now, now I can just go up to go up to him and and say, oh hi, remember me from uh, from you know a couple of weeks ago in in Hollywood, and and it just uh, yeah it, it it just expands your contacts immensely, and and yeah that's all that's all good for for marketing and trying to get your stuff out there. Definitely. Now listen, listen, Richard, you know, you are the kind of the gold winner there. Is Galaxy Press looking after you? <laughs> are they treating you like a you, god? Uh, are they? <laughs> I, I am. I am sitting here on Hollywood Boulevard in the luxurious wood-panelled gallery of Author Services. Behind me, you would not believe there is one of the best collections of original artwork from um, from the sort of the old pulp novels that you've ever seen. I mean, you're just you're tr- not only me, but everyone here, all the all the artists, all the illustrators, all the all the writers. We've just been treated so well. It's just been uh, it's just been a fantastic experience. Richard, honestly, I just again congratulations. I'm so happy for all years. You know what I mean? Because, like you say, the amount of people that must enter these competitions is just probably staggering. Do you know what I mean? And I just know yeah. from kind of what we get, you know, in Starship Silver, just like requests to actually play stories. You know what I mean? It's just like it's so a big competition like that, where a, with a big bit of prize money as well. Do you know what I mean? Yeah. <laughs> yes. Yeah. Yeah. Never mentioned that, but well done, <laughs> well done on that side as well. Thank you. Well, hopefully, you know, you've cut your teeth on Starship Sofa, but hopefully, you know, Richard, you'll, you'll come back, you'll, you'll not forget Starship Sofa, you know, that little, that little podcast that, you know, give you a break. <laughs> I, I would never, I'm, I'm, I'm kind of geeking out myself here, I'm a big fan of the show, and I listen to it every week, so it's, it's great to finally talk to you. Oh, yes, honestly, it is, just, you know, that's amazing, you know, come so far, winning that award, brilliant stuff. Well, Richard, and everyone, you know, we'll, we'll call it a day now, but honestly, thank you so much for taking part in this. No worries, thank you for taking the time to, to talk to us. That's, um, that's do you want me to put you back to John just to is, finish up? Is, yes, is John still there, is he? Yeah, yeah, I'll pass you over. Okay, bye. We've come full circle. Yes, John, honestly, it's just like, it. it is so exciting to, to talk to these writers, you know, because they're now just like ready to conquer the world, you know, what you've done for them. Well, that's the actual intention. The reason why Mr. Hubbard set up the contest originally was to do that. We're in a, we're in a world where there's not a whole lot of acknowledgement, a whole, not a whole lot of encouragement. And unfortunately, a lot of the status quo sees anybody new as competition. And it's so not what the contest is about. You know, and the judges who participate totally know that uh, the future's got to be put there. And if they take a helping hand in, it's going to guarantee a really bright future for Sinusy. And I just also wanted to put a, a comment on, I'll send you the book cover, but uh, Cliff Nielsen was the artist. He was the one that actually taught the workshop this year, but he was the one that did the cover art for this book. Absolutely brilliant. He's uh, one of the incredible new judges that have come on board. We also have uh, Dave Dorman. I don't know if you've heard of him. He did all the. Um, uh, Star Wars artwork, he's very famous for that. He just came on as a judge. Um, Robert Castillo was a uh, winner a few years ago. He's now a judge. He's, uh, he's done an immense amount of work on storyboards for uh, mov- uh, movies and music videos. 
and um, it's just been a, an amazing amount of uh, thrill to the you know to the contest and to the uh, the winners to have this. And we also have Sean Tan, who just won an Oscar a few weeks ago, who became a judge. He'll be out next year. Uh, he's been very, very busy, but he's very excited to have come full circle, having won um, one. He was the first Australian winner, and now come full circle, having won an Oscar, and now he's uh, a judge for the contest. Hey, there is, you know, we just talked about that as well. There is quite a, you know, Australia seems to be putting out some some great talent there. Australia's got some incredible talent, and Sean Williams is wants to spearhead and just make the the Australian contingency a, a serious force to reckon with for the future of the uh, the whole genre. Well, that's that's amazing. And you know, if you could, if you don't mind, you know, you say that you send over the cover. If you let us, you know, put that that cover on the website so that everyone can see the cover of the book, that would be amazing as well. Absolutely, yeah. I'll give you a PDF that you can do that. Oh, that's lovely because we've got a nice prime spot that we can kind of bang it up. So everyone, please come over to Starships over, have a look at that cover, and I'll put some links on. And John, did you say it, it's in Kindle now as well? It will be. It's, it, the book itself doesn't officially release till next month, so it'll, it'll be up there next month. Right. Well, we're certainly looking forward to that. Again, John, thank you for coming on, you know, sharing your, your winners there. And, you know, it's nice to know Starship Sofa there was with the, the winning one, Richard Johnson. We, we, he cut his teeth on Starship Sofa. <laughs> That's a fact. That's a fact. And anybody should get a copy of the book so they can read his bio to um, This is Hollywood Boulevard. That's the standard sound here. Um, <laughs> They should uh, uh, read the bio so they can hear about how Starship Sofa actually um, made such an impression on him. Oh, that's a... Just shivers up the back of my neck there. John. Okay, great. <laughs> John, honestly, yeah. thank you so much. Look after yourself. Um, we'll speak soon. Thank you very much, Tony. Have a great day. Take care. There you go. You can just honestly... Can't you tell? You can just tell from their voices. They are, like I say to John, they are just fueled up, ready to go now. And like I say, they could be turning out stories that are just captivating us in the future. So well done, everyone who, and you know, who everyone kind of took part in that competition. And great, you know, that um, one of the, the, the winner, you know, the winner cut his teeth on Starship Sofa. How fantastic is that? So let's jump in with Amy H. Sturgis. Ames, looking back at genre history. Hello, ladies and gentlemen. It's time for another look back into genre history. Today, I'd like to talk about an author about whom not much is known. In fact, if I told you everything we know about her, well, let's just say it wouldn't be a very long segment. Fortunately, however, we can talk about her work. And she most certainly deserves to be remembered by those of us who love speculative fiction. I'm talking about an author who called herself Ella Scrimsour. Whether this was her real name or a nom de plume, we don't know. But she published several works, and I'd like to talk about those as a whole, and in particular, six short stories and one novel. Here's what we do know about her. She called herself Ella Scrimsour, and it does seem she was married because one of her works is dedicated to her husband. Also, we know she was alive during the 1920s and 1930s because that's when her works were published. That's about all that we can be certain of. Very recently, and I mean very recently, 
Freelance author and editor Steve Holland has suggested that he has uncovered more about her. He suggests that she is Ella M. Campbell Robertson, who was born in 1888, who married Charles John Scrimsour Nickel, and together they toured as Nicholas and Joan Thorpe Maine, actors, who went as far as Sri Lanka as part of the Warwick Comedy Company in 1921. And that eventually she died in 1962 in England, survived by one daughter. If this discovery is correct, then perhaps more information about her will be forthcoming. To be fair, most of her works really don't relate very much to genre fiction, or they do just a different genre than the one we're here to talk about, as they were pretty much melodramatic romances. So, for example, Gay, a Good Time Girl, in 1934; Love Untold, also 1934; and Love Above All, 1935, are rather straightforward romances. Now, a couple of her romances do have a touch of something more. For example, The Bridge of Distances, written in 1924, reads a bit more like a romantic adventure. There's a treasure hunt. There's reincarnation. There's travel to distant lands. So there's the touch of both the supernatural and the exotic involved. In Neath Burmese Bells, 1925, she also transcends the romantic genre by creating something that's much more gothic and macabre. The story begins with a vicious rape. And it ends years later with the daughter, who was the product of that rape, tracking down her father, poisoning him, watching him die, and in this murder, avenging her mother. Good dark stuff. Her first novel, though, is something altogether different. Published in 1922, it was *The Perfect World*. A romance of strange people and strange places, and yes, strange is the word that would apply here. Here is the general gist of the book, and believe me, I am making this much simpler than it actually is. There is an airship called the Argenta that is being built of a kind of metal that's incredibly light. It's not quite ready for its maiden voyage. But as it's being completed,、um, weird things start happening. Strange coiling lights appear. Some people go nuts. Other people are caught by these lights, and then they disappear. As it turns out, the lights deposit people、uh, under the ground, which is being run by these sort of purple. Vicious people who are apparently the last remnants of the lost tribes of Israel, and a really big snake. The hero and his friends are taken hostage down under the ground, and one of the nice purple people actually offers to help, and they escape from this subterranean world. Finally, find their way out in Australia. After basically burrowing through the center of the earth, the British people are fine, but the purple woman who helped them turns to dust once she gets out in daylight. 
By the time our fearless heroes make it back to England, the airship is ready to go, and they hop on board. Just seven people, folks, right before this monstrous volcanic eruption completely tears apart the planet. And when I say completely tears apart the planet, I mean the Atlantic Ocean evaporates because of the explosion. The seven lucky survivors in the Argenta end up colonizing Jupiter, which is the perfect world described in the title. You can't say that Ella Scrimsour didn't have an imagination, can you? Jack Adrian, to whose work on Ella Scrimsour I am indebted for this segment, compares the perfect world to a classic of science fiction, David Lindsay's A Voyage to Arcturus, which was published only two years earlier in 1920. Although, as Adrian points out, A Voyage to Arcturus is somewhat aloof and cold and clinical, whereas The Perfect World is really a vigorous, enthusiastic page-turner of a work. Okay, this work alone, then, should be enough to put Ellis Scrimsour on the science fiction map. But this is not the thing that I find most interesting about her. Even before this novel, Scrimsour earned her SF stripes, as it were, with six short stories she published in 1920. All six appeared in a modest little publication called The Blue Magazine, which was one of the many post-war magazines that popped up in the West, in this case in England, on a shoestring budget and really never outgrew its humble origins. It lasted for about eight years and then folded, which is one reason that these short stories have remained obscure for so long. The stories include The Eyes of Doom, The Death Vapor, the Room of Fear, The Phantom Isle, The Werewolf of Rannick, and The Wraith of Fergus McGinty. Now, as you know, on previous segments, I have looked at various science fiction protagonists, investigators, detectives, and such, like John Silence and Thomas Carnacki and Professor Challenger, characters who were science fiction or paranormal investigators. Well, all of Ella Scrimsour's short stories featured a woman protagonist, Sheila Crerer, psychic investigator. And for this period, really, she stands alone as the single female protagonist in this whole subgenre. Several things about Sheila Crerer make her particularly interesting. For one thing, she isn't a scientist. Unlike, for example, Professor Challenger, she doesn't have an immense academic background that she can fall back upon in order to come up with interesting theories about how the universe is working and how what seems to be supernatural is probably really natural after all. She has and uses a good sense of logic, but she is not a scientist. Secondly, she doesn't have any fancy technology to take into her cases with her. You may remember that, for example, Karnacki the Ghost Finder had an electric pentacle that he carried around. And 
other sorts of science fictional equipment that came with just the right amount of techno babble to make them sound plausible. Sheila Crerer had nothing along these lines. What she did have were two personal gifts, one normal and one, well, paranormal. She had a tremendous sense of compassion, which made her want to help her clients and also feel for, empathize with, sympathize with the spirits with whom she dealt. She also had a paranormal gift. She was psychic. She could see ghosts. This obviously made her an especially well-qualified investigator of hauntings. Now, in today's taste, I would say that the cases she investigates are more atmospheric than terrifying. But there are several reasons we should really give credit to the Sheila Crerer character as a pioneering one in speculative fiction. For one thing, obviously she's a woman, she pursues her chosen career to help people through this psychic investigation in a determined and single-minded kind of way. In the first mystery, she helps Lady Kildrummy, who happens to have a nephew who falls pretty hard for Sheila, and Sheila does in fact return his affections. Through each of the successive stories, he is pursuing her, but she holds him off, saying that really she is a career girl. She says, I have set myself a task and I must complete it. She does call on him to help sometimes in her work, and she makes it clear that she does feel for him, but her main attention goes to her work. On a related note, some reviewers have suggested that perhaps she equated her psychic gifts with her purity, in the same way that, for example, in Arthurian lore, Galahad's strength is tied to his purity. And so it seemed that perhaps she might assume that marriage might spell the end of her ability to see ghosts. Certainly, when she does choose to settle down with Staverdale Hartland, she gives up her psychic investigations. But she doesn't do this until, in fact, she has solved her cases. Here's a little passage from The Eyes of Doom that gives you an insight into Sheila Crerer. That night, Sheila changed into a dark rest gown, and when everyone had retired to bed, she prowled up and down the long corridors, armed only with a tiny flash lamp. She unlocked the chapel door and went inside. Suddenly, she felt an icy blast that seemed to pierce through her, and the heavy door closed silently behind her. She felt startled and tried to open it, but the catch was down on the other side. She was locked in. The sudden gust of wind was not repeated, yet she found she was shivering with cold from head to foot. Always venturesome, the thought never entered her head to find a way of rousing the household. If she was unable to get out, then she would stay in the chapel till day came. She sat down in one of the old-fashioned pews and looked about her. The moon was conveniently bright, and she could distinguish objects quite clearly by its light. As she sat, she became aware that someone was looking at her, and she turned sharply round. 
a pair of eyes was gazing at her, eyes so mournful, so full of grief, that Sheila felt her own fill with tears of sympathy. So there you have the venturesome and compassionate Sheila Crerer, psychic investigator. Fortunately, in 2006, Ashtree Press compiled all of the Sheila Crerer stories into the volume Sheila Crerer, Psychic Investigator, edited by the aforementioned Jack Adrian. Thus far, her works are not available online, so this is the best way to get a hold of some of her stories. I hope I've piqued your interest in The Perfect World and Sheila Crerer and the other works of Ella Scrimsour. I look forward to sharing once again soon with you another look back into genre history. There you go. Ian, thank you so much. You are a star. Big hugs, thank you. So we're going to play now one of these Hugo nominated. Did you know I was nominated for Oh, the show was nominated for a Hugo, yeah. <laughs> yes, well, we're going to get one of these stories. This story is actually by Sean McMullen, and it's called Eight Miles, and it's in the category of novelette. Just for anyone out there who doesn't know who Sean McMullen is... He has oodles of short stories there, and his first short story actually, I think, probably came out in 1986 at the Focus, and it was written with Paul Collins, right up to, you know, still today, pumping out short stories, had one in Analogue in 2011 there. Novels to his credit, he has The Centurion's Empire, Before the Storm, Call to Edge, that's actually a collection of short stories, and Walking to the Moon. His fiction series, Great Winter, he has about five or six in there. The Eyes of the Green Lancer, Destroyer of Illusions, Voices of the Light, Mirror Sun Rising. He was born at midnight, as Wikipedia says, December 1948 in Victoria. He is an Australian science fiction and fantasy author. He, he, holds, or he holds a degree in physics and history from Melbourne University and is a postgraduate in library and information science with a, oh God, with a PhD, no less, in medieval literature. He was a professional musician in the 1970s, concentrating on singing and guitar playing. Cool, Sean. Now, his first novel was actually, this is what Wikipedia says, was published in Australia as two separate books, Voices in the Light, 1994, and what I just said before, Mirror Sun Rise in 1995. They were rewritten and combined for publication in the US as Souls in the Great Machine, which came out in 1999. And that was actually the one that, when I was mentioning there, the, the Great Winter Trilogy. We actually have some more stories by Sean as well coming up in the future, so do look out for this, but I'm really, you know, it's nice to get a, a Hugo-nominated story as well. This story, Eight Miles that you're about to hear, was, like I say, nominated for the Hugo, and it was hailed as one of the best stories of the September analogue in the August edition of Locust. So it came out in analogue, but Locust was raving about it as well. And it was actually in the Locust recommended reading for 2010. I'll put a link on to Sean's site. Like I say, we've got some more stories by Sean as well coming up in the future, and he's been very kind to let Starship Sova play this story. It is narrated by our very own fantastic Simon Hildebrand. Simon! What a great narration. Thank you so much. So, Starship Sova is very proud to present... Eight Miles by Sean McMullen Consider a journey of eight miles. One could walk it in less than an afternoon. In a carriage it would take an hour. 
or one could conquer the distance in one of Stevenson's steam trains in fifteen minutes or less. Set two towers eight miles apart, and a signal may be transmitted by flashing mirrors in less time than modern science is able to measure. Eight miles is not all that it used to be, yet seek to travel eight miles straight up, and you come to a frontier more remote than the peaks of Tibet's mountains, or the depths of Africa's jungles. It is a frontier that can kill. My journey of eight miles began in London in the spring of 1840. At that time I was the owner and operator of a hot air balloon. It was reliable, robust and easy to fly, and I provided flights to amuse the jaded and idle rich. It was a fickle income, but when I had clients they paid well for novelty. Lord Cedric Gainsley was certainly rich and when his card arrived I assumed he wished to hire my balloon to impress some friends with a flight above London. I kept it packed aboard a wagon to launch from wherever the clients wished. Its open wicker car could carry six adults. Indeed, the idea of six people of mixed sex, packed in close proximity, seemed to add to the allure of a balloon flight. My first moments in Gainsley's London rooms told me that he was no ordinary client, the walls of the parlour were decorated by maps, alternating with sketches of mountain peaks and ruins. The butler showed me into a drawing room completely lined with books. This was nothing unusual, for many gentlemen bought identical collections of worthy books to display to visitors. At that time it was also fashionable to collect, so Gainsley collected. In and on display cases were preserved insects, fossil shells, mineral crystals, old astronomical instruments clocks dating back to the 14th century, lamps from the Roman Empire, and coins from ancient Greece. Seven species of fox were represented by stuffed specimens. As I began to look through Gainsley's library, however, I realised that many books had been heavily used, to the point of being grubby. They were mainly concerned with the natural sciences. Does geology interest you? I turned to see a tall man of perhaps forty, handing a top hat to the butler. He wore a black tailcoat with a fashionably narrow waist, but was just slightly unkempt. A rich man who did not want to draw attention to himself might look that way. Geology? You mean the books? Yes, that's what made me rich. I learned to tell when minerals were present, in places where other men saw in the wilderness. The butler cleared his throat. Lord Cedric Gainsley... Uh, may I introduce Mr. Harold Parks, he improvised, not entirely sure of the protocol when the Baron had opened the conversation first. Thank you, Stuart. Now have Miss Angelica ready and waiting for my summons. Very good, my lord. Once we were alone, Gainsley waved at a crystal brandy decanter and told me to make myself at home. He paced before the fireplace as I poured myself a glass and showed no interest in a drink for himself. I took a sip. It was very good, far better than I was used to. How high may your balloon ascend, Mr. Parks? he asked. I take pleasure seekers a mile above London, I began. My rates, your rates are not a problem for me. Could you ascend, say, two miles? I blinked. At two miles the air is thin and cold, sir. Besides, the view of London is not as good as from a lower altitude. Two miles, and hold that height for six hours. I blinked again. Pleasure flights seldom lasted more than one hour. People got bored. 
More to the point, the balloon needed to carry fuel for its burner to maintain the supply of hot air. That was a constraint. I must ask some questions, sir. How many passengers, uh, what weight will they total, and uh, what weight of food and drink will they carry? You see, to stay aloft for so long, the balloon must carry some fuel to keep the air heated. With the weight of fuel for six hours, I may not even be able to get off the ground. Yourself, myself, a young woman of 140 pounds, and food and drink not exceeding 10 pounds, nothing more. Uh, then it is possible, but not certain. Why not? Nothing in ballooning is certain. Above us is a dangerous and unforgiving frontier. Gainsley thought about this for a time. You are a man of science, Mr. Parks, like me. You invented the mercury ascent barometer, and you calibrated it to five miles. With the help of Green and Rush, yes. They took it on their record-breaking flight some months ago. Yet you are in difficult circumstances. There is no big market for ascent barometers. Many of my other inventions turned out to be impractical, but proving them impractical nearly bankrupted me. Pleasure flights are not my preferred career, but they are lifting me out of debt. I had once had visions of becoming the George Stevenson of the skies by inventing the airborne train, and I spent all my money installing a purpose-built Cornish steam engine with small windmill blades beneath a hot air balloon. Alas, although it did drive the balloon in any direction on a calm day, in wind it was useless. As I found out, a balloon is effectively a huge sail, and the wind was more than a match for any steam engine small enough to be carried aloft. Mr. Parks, my flights are to be no pleasure jaunt, and I need an innovative balloonist, one who can solve technical problems as they arise, Gainsley now explained. I intend to study the effects of extreme altitude on a very special person. I will pay you fifty pounds for each ascent, and I shall also pay for the fuel to inflate your balloon with hot air. My condition is that you work for nobody else while in my hire, and that you exercise absolute discretion regarding the flights and the nature of my research. His rates were certainly better than what I was currently making from pleasure flights. In fact, as a business proposition, it was too good to be true. Once I had agreed, he pulled at a red velvet tassel that hung beside the fireplace. The butler appeared within moments. My lord? Stuart, fetch Miss Angelica now. Angelica was a young woman, a little below average height, with a delicate, angular face. She was wearing a dark blue woolen cloak and a close-fitting bonnet, but I could see nothing more of her attire. There was something odd about her eyes. They were listless, almost lacking in life. Miss Angelica has been in my service for some months, said Gainsley. I named her Angelica because she comes from very high altitudes. A fallen angel? Quite so, it is my little joke. Now then, put your glass down, make sure you are seated comfortably, and prepare yourself for a shock. Gainsley unpinned her cloak and let it fall to the floor. Such were my expectations that it took some moments to realize that she was neither clothed nor naked. Angelica was covered in fine dark brown fur, except for her face. She had three pairs of breasts, each no larger than that of a girl in early pubescence. Her chest was surprisingly broad and deep, however, and I would estimate that her lung capacity was greater than mine. Her ears were pointed in the manner of a fox. I sat staring for some time. Well, 
asked Gainsley. The young woman showed no sign of shame, which was a very strong clue. She was probably used to being on display. I have seen the like before, I replied uneasily. Indeed? Where? At fairgrounds, in the novelty tents. Women with beards, boys with six and seven fingers. I have seen a child with two heads. By some accident of birth, the human template was not applied to them correctly by nature. For this young woman, it is the same. You are wrong, said Gainsley. She is a werefox, for lack of a better word. She speaks no language, sleeps on the floor, and is not familiar with clothing. I managed not to make a reply, which is just as well, because it would surely have been sarcastic. You clearly do not share my opinion, he prompted. Uh, indeed not, sir. Then how do you account for her condition? A feral child, abandoned by her parents. She was born covered in fur, so they cast her out. Perhaps wild beasts raised her. I thought that too, at first. I did indeed find her in a fairground. Her manager said she had been brought from a dealer, who also sold dancing bears. When she was captured in India's northern mountains, she had been more active and entertaining. She could even do little tricks. At low altitude, she became very lethargic, however, and was only of value as a passive curiosity. It was not until some days later that I realized the truth. I returned to the fair and bought her. And what is that truth? The girl is adapted to very great altitudes. At sea level, the richness of the air overwhelms her, much as a diet of that brandy would overwhelm either of us. I believe there is a whole race of humans who live in the highest of mountains, adapted to the thin air. The idea was fantastic. I looked back to the girl. Her lungs were certainly large in proportion to her body, and the fur would have protected her from the cold. I am not sure what role you have planned for me, I said at last. I know nothing of mountaineering. Ah, but your balloon will be a substitute for the mountains. A trip to India would take years, but my business interests do not allow me to leave England for more than days. Your balloon can take us two miles high in uh, how long? Twenty minutes? Perhaps thirty? It depends on the load. Splendid. We can do the flight above my estate, north of London, and be down in time for dinner. At two miles, I can observe how Angelica reacts to thin air and cold. If it restores her senses, I might even be able to speak with her to question her about her people. Gainsley helped Angelica back into her cloak, then rang for the butler to escort her away. Once we were alone again, he walked over to the window and gestured to the crowded street outside. Look upon my prosperous neighbours, Mr. Park, he said. Merchants, bankers, financiers, landed gentry. What do they do other than grow rich and live well? Visit the theatre? Attend the races? Go to balls, I guess. Some take balloon rides above the races. That is all the fashion just now. Theatre, balls, races, Gainsley muttered, shaking his head. Within a year of their deaths, such people are all but forgotten. I want to be like Isaac Newton, James Cook, or Joseph Banks. I want to be remembered for discovering something stupendous. Miss Angelica will make my name. Uh, you have lost me, sir. I have a theory, Mr. Parks. In my theory of adaptive morphology, I assert that humans take other physical forms under extremes. For example, in polar regions, they may become seals if they dwelt there too long.
Ah, the silky legend of the Scots. People turning into seals. Yes, and I think that extreme altitudes might render us into a form like that of Angelica. Gainsley's estate was not far to the north of London, and he sent his draft horses to draw my transport wagon there. Kelly and Feldman were my tending crew, and they spent most of the night setting the frame and unpacking and checking the balloon itself. I was up two hours before dawn, adjusting my altitude barometer and installing it in the wicker car. Inflating a balloon on the ground is not a problem. One has unlimited fuel to supply the hot air and to keep the hot air maintained. Once aloft, it is a different matter. The little furnace in the wicker car is fueled by lamp oil that the balloon must carry, so this oil must be used sparingly. It is the work of a half hour to inflate the bag sufficiently that it stood up by itself. Then I sent word to the manor house that we were ready to ascend. Gainsley emerged with Angelica, leading her by a chain attached around her waist. She was dressed in the manner of a boy. We rose very rapidly, drifting right over the roof of the manor house. The wind was southerly and very light, and the sky was clear. At first Gainsley made a big show of looking over the side and exclaiming at the sight of his estate far below. He almost seemed to forget why we were there, and chatted about ascending with an artist next time, to have his lands painted from above. I had the barometer calibrated to display altitude in quarters of miles. At a mile and a half, Gainsley suddenly remembered why he had paid for the ascent. A mile and one half, almost eight thousand feet, he said, peering at my barometer. We are ascending slowly at about five miles per hour, I reported. Six minutes from the prescribed height, he replied. Angelica was apparently found at eleven thousand feet. Can you hold that altitude? That I can, sir. Our bleeding a little hot air from the balloon will reduce our buoyancy and stabilize our height. I released some hot air, and we continued to ascend, but at a much slower rate. According to my barometer, we settled at twelve thousand feet. By my estimate, we were drifting north-northeast at three miles per hour. The direction of the wind was different up here. It was at this altitude that the visions began. Actually, the term visions does not do them justice. They were more like memories that were not mine being implanted in my head. I seemed to have walked beside canals built across deserts of red sand, beneath an unnaturally dark blue sky with a pale and tiny sun. In the distance I could see a city, but it was more of a metropolis of immense crystals of saltpetre, feldspar and quartzite than like London. I had paid Angelica no attention until now, being occupied with tending the furnace, checking the barometer, and monitoring the direction and progress of our drift relative to the ground. It was Gainsley who took me by the arm and pointed to her. Angelica had begun the ascent sitting on the floor of the wicker car, paying no heed to what was going on around her. Now she was on her feet, looking over the edge of the car. As I watched, she turned away and scrutinized my altitude barometer. For a full minute at least she stared at the mercury, then she raised her hand slowly before making a horizontal chopping motion. Sign language, said Gainsley. She is telling us that she understands what is happening. We have been rising, but now we have stopped. More than that, I said with an odd prickle in my skin. She understands my altitude barometer on first viewing. In London, at sea level, Angelica had shown not the slightest interest in the machines and furniture that surrounded her. Even the mechanics of doors were beyond her. Now she was able to read a barometer, 
and that ability was beyond ninety-nine in every hundred of my fellow Britons. I noticed her eyes. For the first time they were alert, calculating, even intelligent. Angelica, can you hear me? asked Gainsley. At the sound of her assigned name, she turned her head. Angelica, speak to me, urged Gainsley. Speak. Speak English, French, Hindi, anything. He put his hand to his ear to signify that he expected an answer. Angelica did not reply. At the pace of a slow walk, we drifted over the countryside. Far below, I could see farmhouses and other manors. Gainsley continued to coax and question Angelica. She proved disappointing. He showed her pictures of mountains, foxes, and even a sketch of herself. She displayed a vague interest, but did not speak. How long have we been aloft? he asked me. Uh, one hour and thirty minutes. And what endurance have we? Uh, very little. The seal of the bag is imperfect. There's some hole that my crew missed, so hot air slowly leaks out. I balance that by stoking up the furnace and working the bellows, but the air is cold and thin up here, and it is using too much lamp oil. Gainsley scowled, but did not argue. This was my ship, after a fashion, and I was the captain. He returned to his questioning of Angelica. The wind swung around and began to blow us back towards London. There was little for me to do, other than feed in hot air every so often to maintain height. I watched as Angelica became even more alert. She examined the magnetic compass, Gainsley's pocket watch, and even the furnace. After studying the last mentioned for some minutes and watching me at work, she gently pushed me aside, bled in some lamp oil, and applied herself to the bellows. Astounding, I gasped. She deduced its operation, merely from watching. Very high intelligence, said Gainsley. And an understanding of machines. Now Angelica scrutinized the barometer, where the mercury indicated that we had risen another quarter mile. To my complete astonishment, she touched her finger to the new level of mercury. She understands the operation of this balloon as well as the altitude barometer, I said. Very few of my passengers could claim that. Up here, in rarefied air, she is transformed, Gainsley observed. How can this be? Remember my theory, adaptive morphology? I think she comes from a civilization in very high mountains. Ascending into cool, thin air frees her mind from the effects of the sludge that we breathe. Finally, I declared that we would have to descend. By then, Angelica had not spoken a single word, but she had demonstrated awesome intelligence. My balloon was one of the most advanced vehicles of the time, yet she understood its workings and instruments. Only four hours of exposure to the thin air, yet her brain cleared, said Gainsley in triumph. She did not speak. Yet she understood the balloon's workings. Her Werefox race must have its own language, I suggested. It was at this point, just as we began our descent, that Angelica began tapping at the altitude barometer and making upward movements with her other hand. The part of the scale she was indicating was for eight miles. This part of the scale was where I had marked uncalibrated altitude projections. She looked at me, her eyes alive and full of pleading. I held up the empty lamp oil barrel and shook my head. She seemed to comprehend, for she now sat quietly on the car's wicker floor and closed her eyes, resigned to the oblivion of sea level. Using the varying directions of the wind at different altitudes, I managed to steer us back over Gainsley's estate, then bring us to earth just a mile from where we had ascended. Kelly and Feldman presently arrived with the wagon, 
Then Gainsley's groom brought a light carriage. He was quick to get Angelica into the carriage and away from sight. But with this done, he returned to speak with me as I helped my men pack the balloon away. How high may we ascend? he asked. How long may we stay there? Hot air has its limitations, I explained. My balloon must carry its own fuel. Going higher means using more fuel. Using more fuel means less is left over to sustain the hot air and maintain our height. Could you build a balloon to reach eight miles? I almost choked on my own gasp. The question was akin to asking whether a new type of gun could shoot a duck even more dead than dead. Uh, there is no point, I replied. A above five miles, the air is so rarefied that one may not breathe. But you could build a balloon to do it. Uh, using hydrogen, yes, but to what end? Uh, it would be our dead bodies that achieve the feat. Then how high may we go? I think you mean how high in safety. Four miles is my answer. Why four? Remember, the air thins as we ascend. I have ascended three and one-half miles. It was distressing, but endurable. My lips and those of my companion turned blue, and fatigue set in very quickly. Four miles is double what we achieved today. Have others gone higher? Uh, yes. Uh, some months ago, the aeronauts Charles Green and Spencer Rush reached five miles. They found it near to impossible to breathe, however, and considered themselves lucky to have survived. Five miles. The height is comparable to the highest of mountains to the north of India. Uh, so I have read. So we too could do it? Uh, yes, but it would be appallingly dangerous. I fought Napoleon just a quarter century ago. How can this be more dangerous than trading volleys with his soldiers? Uh, death is death, whatever the cause. Uh, why ascend five miles in search of it? Because at four or five miles we may well clear Angelica's mind to a greater degree. She may even be able to speak. Begin planning for another hot air flight tomorrow, but also draw up plans for a balloon filled with hydrogen. Do you realize that hydrogen is even more volatile than gunpowder? Of course, Mr. Parks, I am a man of science. Send the bills for whatever you need to me. Uh, so I am to be kept in your employ? I asked. Yes, yes, board and lodging for you and your men plus double our agreed rates for the flights because of the increased danger. That night I dreamed, and my dreams were lurid. My mind was filled with visions of vast, gleaming things that glided through darkness, and blossoms of fire that became twinkling clouds of glitter. I awoke, not so much distraught as puzzled. The dreams had become part of my memory. What was more confusing was that I had other memories that were not part of the dreams. There were splendid cities full of graceful crystalline towers and wide promenades, yet all of them were strewn with dead creatures. At first I thought the bodies were of vermin, but many of them were wearing straps and belts, gold braid, ceremonial swords, and even helmets. Perhaps they had built the cities, these creatures that wore no clothes but fur. They closely resembled Angelica. We made another dozen hot air ascents while the hydrogen bag was being fabricated. We did not manage much more in communicating with Angelica, but the visions continued to pour into my head every time we ascended. I said nothing, because practical men are not meant to have visions, and I wanted to keep Gainsley's trust. Would you travel on a ship whose captain said he could see water sprites, mermaids, and harpies? I could only compare my visions to leafing through randomly chosen books in a library. I saw nothing of the whole picture, just snatches of fragments.
A gas works at the edge of London provided the hydrogen, which saved the cost of buying a hydrogen reactor and chemicals to fuel it. The first hydrogen flight saw us ascend from the city in the half-light before dawn. We remained at four miles for only a quarter hour, because Gainsley quickly weakened, then lost consciousness. I descended rapidly, and when he revived, he confessed that his lungs had been weakened by some childhood disease. On the other hand, Angelica had been vastly improved by even the brief exposure to the thin air, and had even scrawled some characters and diagrams on a notepad. Alas, we could make no sense of them. On the way down, I had a number of ideas. Gainsley had been complaining about his lungs preventing him from staying at four miles. I offered to take Angelica to five miles without him, and report what she did, but he would not hear of it. Whatever she did, he wanted to be there to see it. If only I could make the ascent myself, he sighed. Uh, impossible. Even at four miles we are on borrowed time, you especially. Green and Rush did it. Only briefly. They were on borrowed time, too. Yet they lived. They lived because they descended in haste. People must acclimatize slowly to very high altitudes. Mountaineers I have spoken to say that it takes weeks. Find a way. Two hundred pounds, and I will pay for whatever you need. Two hundred pounds, you say? I do pledge that. Then there may be a way. I have been reading about the nature of air, my lord. Uh, you may have heard of the experiments with glass jars and candles. Burn a candle in one, and it will go out when the oxygen is exhausted. Introduce a mouse to that depleted air, and it soon suffocates. We'll explain further. Suffocation interests me, being a balloonist. I perform this experiment, then I pipe some pure oxygen into that depleted air. The mouse revived. Gainsley thought about this for some time, smiling and nodding every so often. How heavy is the mechanism for supplying oxygen? he asked at last. I need a bigger reactor to supply enough oxygen for humans, but it need not be very heavy. Just a tank, some pipes, spigots, and a sealable chute. Then build it. Build it. I will pay for the materials and labour. And the uh, 200-pound bounty? It is yours. The problem of staying alive at extreme altitudes occupied my mind a great deal in the days that followed. Oxygen is the essential ingredient of air that gives us life, yet it occupies only one part in five of air's volume. Provide air that is five parts of oxygen, and one might well survive in much thinner air. I paid a visit to Darkington and Sons, pneumatic systems and valves of Sheffield. Jeremy Darkington was about Gainsley's age, but he was dressed as a tradesman and spoke with a hybrid Yorkshire Cockney accent. He was a skilled metal worker who had made good by supplying valves for steam trains. While he sat behind his desk, I unpacked my chemicals. I uncorked a bottle and poured a little solution into a glass, then opened a jar of dark purple crystals. I dropped one into the glass, where it began to bubble with great vigour. Permanganate of potash added to peroxide of hydrogen will release oxygen, I explained as we watched the reaction turn the liquid to a greenish-purple froth. I know the reaction, he replied. I now laid out drawings before him. I wish to have a reactor built. Peroxide will be fed in here, potash here. Oxygen will be released into this pipe as they react, and when they are spent, the solution will be vented through this tap before fresh materials are introduced to give off more oxygen. He examined the drawings, scratching his head from time to time, but generally nodding. At last he looked up. It can be built, but uh, what end for it? Uh, there's oxygen all around. 
I have an application that calls for pure oxygen. An industrial application. Ah. So, how much to build it, and how long? Ah, somewhat busy for present. Uh, Thirty pounds. Just now there's a batch of valves for Mr. Stevenson's new engine fleet. Uh, A fortnight? Done. Put my contract on your books. My reactor looked viable in principle, but the only way to test it was by means of a flight. That was risky. Still, it was worth the risk. My father had two sayings that I live by. Luck is opportunity recognized, was sensible enough, except that opportunities generally eluded me. That which is too good to be true is never true, was a little less positive, yet it had kept me out of trouble on many occasions. Gainsley and his scheme seemed too good to be true, yet he paid generously enough. I was returning from Sheffield, and was within ten miles of Gainsley's manor house, when a rainstorm swept over the countryside. Because it was late in the afternoon, I decided to spend the night at a small inn on the edge of a hamlet. I was dining on a pork pie when a bearded man approached me. He was dressed as an itinerant labourer, but that illusion vanished as soon as he began to speak. "'So you are Gainsley's latest balloonist,' he said in a soft, almost conspiratorial voice with a French accent. "'I do not know you, sir,' I responded warily. "'My name is Norvin, and I know you to be Harold Parks.' Clearly he had something serious to discuss. I gestured to a chair. You said I was Lord Gainsley's latest balloonist, yet the Baron never flew before I took him aloft. He has had four balloonists. Routley? He died in a mysterious duel in 1831. Sanderson died of food poisoning two years later. Elders fell from the carriage of a train in 1837 and was found beside the tracks with his neck broken. I would wager my last pound that it was broken before he fell. I felt a stab of alarm, but the stranger showed not a trace of hostility. You said four balloonists, I prompted. I was on a fishing boat, supposedly being taken back to France. One mile out to sea, I was padlocked to a length of iron railing and heaved over the side. Yet here you are, alive. When on hard times I supplemented my income by liberating goods guarded by padlocks, thus my pick-wire is always upon my person. It was a near thing, picking a lock in darkness underwater. I was aware that these balloonists he had named had died, for we are a small fraternity. Now I speculated. The balloonist Edward Norvin was French and a veteran of the Napoleonic Wars. He vanished in 1836. So I did, Monsieur Parks, the seventh day of July, at one hour past midnight. One does not forget days like that in a hurry. I grew a beard and developed a new identity. Can you prove that Gainsley was involved? Can you prove that Gainsley and yourself have had any business dealings? He asked in return. I raised my finger and opened my mouth to reply, but said nothing. All of our dealings had been in cash. My men Kelly and Feldman now lived on the Gainsley estate, as did I. Nobody knew. The colour quite probably drained from my face. Norvin smiled and took a sip from his tankard. You are having dreams and visions, Monsieur Parks, he continued. The visions begin to tumble through your mind when ascending with Gainsley and Angelica. They begin at about ten thousand feet, the altitude at which the foxwoman's mind becomes more clear. It is as if she were emerging from a drunken stupor, raving randomly. 
But she has never said a thing. She is not like us. She speaks with her mind. Her words are images of thoughts. I would say that you have said nothing of this to Gainsley as yet. Why? You are still alive. I did not want to hear any of this, yet it seemed true. I saw the landscapes that were all red and green under a violet sky, Norvin continued. There are cities of silver crystal, their streets strewn with bodies although the buildings were intact. It looked like a scene of plague. My perspective was odd. It was as if I were being dragged about, being made to look at the bodies. The only moving figures were wearing helmets and coveralls that resembled a Seba diving suit, except that the helmets were made of glass and had no air hoses. Now I began to feel really frightened. Norvin was describing precisely what I had seen, both in the ascent visions and in my dreams. I decided to be honest, in order to gain his trust. I have also had dreams filled with vast, gleaming things that floated in darkness against constellations of unfamiliar stars, I confessed. Norvin nodded. I have had similar dreams and visions. Tell me more. I... I... I cannot describe the, the gleaming things, because they are like nothing in my experience, yet they moved with the stateliness of huge ships. They blossomed into white fire that yellowed, then became twinkling, gleaming clouds of fragments. Warships of the air, perhaps, fighting at night. I saw great crowds cheering Angelica. There had been a battle. She was a hero. She was their leader. A woman as leader? Preposterous. Why so? The young Queen Victoria is currently monarch of your vast empire. In the 16th century, Queen Elizabeth ruled you, and she was indeed a warrior queen. In France, we had Joan of Arc. Again, we sat in silence. By now, I was in a cold sweat, in spite of the fire roaring in the hearth. It is my opinion that Angelica came from somewhere very, very high, Norvin speculated. Perhaps from Tibet, in the regions that have never been explored. Regions that cannot be explored, because we cannot breathe there. I have studied maps, such as they exist. I have read accounts of the explorers Cedarbrook and Webb. They reported mountains five miles high. I think that our visions are of cities high in those mountains. It is a region of the size of France, of which we know nothing. What of the bodies in the vision? What is your thought on them? A plague. Uh, Angelica fled for her life, down out of the cool, pure air down into the thick, warm, soporific atmosphere of humans. For her it would have been like lying in a bath of warm whiskey. Her brain is permanently addled by the dense air. Back in the mountains she would be restored, but in my balloon, four miles above this tavern, her mind also begins to clear in the thin air. No plague, said Norvin. I have had four years to think about the contents of my visions. Angelica was not fleeing a plague, she was exiled. There was a war. She was there Napoleon, and she lost. That is it's just too fantastic, I began. Gainsley hopes to learn the secrets of her people's weapons and crafts by listening to the babblings of her mind. As her mind clears, she speaks delirious visions in the minds of all those nearby. That is why he employs you. He wants to learn secrets that could change the world. He has sketched machines and weapons that he does not yet understand, and each flight allows him to gather more fragments from her mind. His problem is that he must always have a balloonist with him, because he is prone to faint in thin air. That is why he killed the others. He does not want anyone accumulating as much of Angelica's vision as he has. 
You told him nothing about the vision, so perhaps he assumes you have a deafness of the mind. Now I laughed. This is preposterous. What would Napoleon or Wellington know about metalworking, cannon manufacture, flintlock mechanisms, or even weaving cloth for uniforms? It is artisans who know these things, not generals. Really? How do you make gunpowder? Why, take sulphur, charcoal, and saltpetre, and mix them in proportions suited to the usage. 60% saltpetre. Suddenly I realized what he meant. Some important secrets were very, very simple. Again, I shivered in the warm room. One single breakthrough can change a world, Monsieur Parks. The simple ideas, simple enough for even generals and monarchs to understand. Gunpowder can win the wars. Invent the bond market, and you can finance wars more easily. Have you ever thought about how accounting changed the world? What about replacing a ship's steering oar with a rudder? All of those things can be comprehended by an idiot or politician. But surely not all of these things lead to war. Think again. Suppose you were governor of some colony, and you were brought word that the local natives were being taught to cast cannons and build warships. Angelica's people will not take kindly to us if we catch up with their sciences. They will put us back in our place, make no mistake, and they will destroy our civilization to do it. Good day to you, Monsieur Parks. He stood up to go. I stood too. Wait, what are you proposing? To you, sir, I am proposing nothing. Then why speak with me? Why, Monsieur Parks? Because when I do what I have to do, I want at least one person to know that I acted out of honor. I had not told Northern everything. I was actually the first balloonist in the employ of Gainsley to use an altitude barometer. On no other flight had Angelica been able to point to eight miles on the scale, because my predecessors did not have barometers. Eight miles. Much of the earth is unexplored, but we do at least know that mountains do not rise to 42,000 feet. Not on our world, anyway. If Angelica were adapted to such a height, it meant that she had once lived on another world. Mars, perhaps. It was a small world, so its air might be thin. I did a lot of research in libraries. Polar caps and seas had been observed on Mars in the mid-17th century, and in 1665 the Italian astronomer Cassini had measured its day to be not much different to that of Earth. It was a world like our own, I quickly established as much. Now I turn to the literature of the fantastic. Godwin's The Man in the Moon had been published over 200 years earlier, introducing us to the idea of travel between worlds, and the great Voltaire made use of the idea in Micromegas. Clearly planets were other worlds, possibly with inhabitants, if a suitable ship could be built. But perhaps it already had. For me, the conclusion was inescapable. The whole of our planet was Angelica's Isle of Exile, her Elba. We had been to half of the height that she was adapted to. Her mind had cleared, but not to any great extent. What might she reveal when fully conscious, with a mind as sharp as a newly wrought cavalry sabre? Eight miles. It was a very long way up. The balloon could do it, but I could not. Not without my new oxygen reactor. My oxygen reactor that had only ever been tested at sea level. Then there was Gainsley. Had Norvin been telling the truth? Had Gainsley killed those other balloonists? Anyway, what to do about Gainsley? Eight miles was double the altitude that was causing him distress, 
Even with pure oxygen, I would be pushing my own powers of endurance to the very limit. Gainsley had no place on the flight, and I told myself that I was excluding him for his own good. In case he was as dangerous as Norman had said, I decided to take my father's old tower flintlock on the next flight. The day of the next ascent began perfectly. The air was calm, and the balloon stood tall and stately above the gasworks. The first flights had all been from the privacy of Gainsley's estate, and had been in hot air balloons. Our initial flight from the gasworks had been done unannounced, and had taken everyone by surprise. This time we had crowds, and the newspaper people were there. Gainsley announced to the public that he would ascend alone, so Angelica and myself had been hidden in the wicker car during the night. We remained crouched down as the balloon filled and the sky lightened. The people of North London seemed determined to make a big occasion of the flight. Gainsley had declared that the ascent was purely scientific, and that he intended to chart the properties of the atmosphere at extreme altitudes. He would measure wind direction, temperature, barometric pressure, humidity, and even the intensity of sunlight. A band began to play, and people cheered. As Gainsley began speaking about the importance of science and progress, we heard two workmen nearby say that the balloon was full, and that the hydrogen lead should be tied off. Gainsley had had the balloon tied down to the roof of the gasworks. One of his trusted men was ready beside a release lever, and pulling upon this would send us on our way. The rope passed through the base of the wicker car, however, and was secured to the main ring at the base of the gas bag. Unknown to everyone, I had brought a butcher's cleaver aboard. Three blows severed the rope. The balloon ascended with the speed of a sprinting man. For some moments the band struck up a triumphant march, but above the music I could hear Gainsley's cries of outrage. A large part of the crowd seemed to think that the launch had gone according to plan, so cheering erupted. I remained crouched down, out of sight. Angelica was as passive as ever. So far luck was with me, and that had me worried. I preferred to have my bad luck at the beginning of a flight, and the good at the end. I had feared that the outraged and frustrated Gainsley or his men might shoot at me, but the huge crowd of witnesses meant that this was not an option. I monitored my watch, and at thirty minutes I stood. The barometer indicated that we were at 12,000 feet and climbing rapidly. Looking down, I saw that we were above the edge of London, but drifting northeast very slowly, out over fields. We rose through the first four miles in 50 minutes. Angelica began to take an interest in her surroundings again, and to gaze over the side. As expected, visions were flickering in my mind, but this time I paid them little heed. At five miles, I activated the oxygen reactor. I had left it rather longer than was probably safe, but its efficiency in thin air was unknown, and I wanted the chemicals to last as long as possible. We were now at the same height as the mountains at the northern frontier of India. If Angelica was from there, this would be her preferred altitude. As I expected, however, her mind did not clear completely. This was bad tidings for me. I knew that I would not last long, even with the oxygen. We were at a height that I should have allowed weeks to adapt to, by moving very little, I tried to conserve my vitality, but my condition was definitely deteriorating. There were new visions that were not from my mind. I was at a balcony, and thousands were cheering. All around me stood Werefox people, wearing no clothing, but decorated with gold braid, studded straps, ceremonial swords, and belts that glowed with tiny lights. Some had apparently dyed their fur in green, purple, blue, and yellow patterns. Angelica stood next to the barometer, still tapping the scale at the eight-mile mark. 
not of this world, that was for certain now. At this height she should have collapsed without the oxygen tube, yet she now looked the most alive and vibrant that I had ever seen her. By rising so high into the atmosphere we were definitely simulating the air of her own world. Her images kept flooding into my mind. Angelica was in something like a courtroom, presided over by judges whose fur was dyed black. Many were-foxes gestured and pointed at her. I understood the wordless trial, I cannot say how. Earth's air is thick and laden with oxygen, so she was sentenced to exile on our world. Here there was too much oxygen, too much pressure, too much heat. At sea level she walked in a stupor, aware of who she was, but unable to put words together. It was a subtle punishment, like being perpetually, helplessly drunk. Now another thought reached me. At a certain height, freedom. The barometer indicated that we were in excess of six miles altitude, when her random thoughts ceased to flood through my mind. It was a distinct relief, as I was now having trouble operating the oxygen reactor that was keeping me alive. I was again lucky, for the device was functioning precisely as it had been designed. When next I checked the barometer, we had passed seven miles. It is difficult to convey the sense of serenity seven miles above the English countryside. There are no birds or insects, and even the cloud tops were small remote things far, far below. Those sounds that I could hear were muted in the thin air, and were no more than the creaking of the wicker car and the bubbling of the permanganate of potash and peroxide of hydrogen. It was very, very cold. Although I was dressed in heavy furs and woolens, riding gloves over dress gloves and sea boots over all my socks, the chill still passed through everything like needles of ice. Being at that height was like a plunge into an icy lake. I would only survive the cold if I did not stay there for long. The light was like nothing I had ever seen, and I was aware that I was the first human ever to see the sky from this altitude. Every breath was an effort, in spite of the pure oxygen from the tube in my mouth. Angelica's thoughts began to trickle into my mind again. These were not the random scatter of memories from her mind as it emerged from the fog of sea-level breathing but sharp, precise, focused thoughts. She was communicating with me. The trickle became a deluge. My last glance at the barometer was at eight miles. We went higher. How high, I shall never know, but it might have been in the vicinity of 45,000 feet. Thoughts flooded into my mind. Specifications, philosophy, principles, tolerances, laws, limits, battles, honours, defeats... Angelica now tended the oxygen reactor as I lay on the floor of the car, holding the tube to my mouth. One last jar of peroxide was left when she looked down at my face. A corona of light seemed to blaze around her head, and tendrils of purple discharge crackled around us. I was wondering if the electrical sparks might ignite the hydrogen in the bag above us when there was a flash of the most intense and pure white light imaginable. I opened my eyes to a sky of deep violet in which a small pale sun was shining amid thin, scattered clouds. In the distance was a gleaming white crystalline city of spires, columns, buttresses and arches, a city that was a work of art in itself. Before me was a canal lined with stone in which purplish water flowed. It stretched straight all the way to the horizon from the city. The fields to either side of this canal were filled with low, bushy trees in which yellow fruit grew. This is not real, I said aloud. Angelica materialized beside me. Of course not. 
we are in my mind. Then where am I? Beneath a balloon, eight miles above the countryside. If we do not descend in another minute, you will die. But minutes can become hours in the mindscape, so do not worry. You can talk. No, I cannot. I have merely imagined that I can talk. It preserves your sanity. Uh, then what shall we talk about? People that I can see in your memories of history books and lessons. Napoleon, Wellington, Caesar, Alexander, Hannibal. Edward Norvin says you are like Napoleon in exile on Elba. He says you must not be allowed to escape, or you will start new wars and cause unimaginable suffering. He did not discuss Hannibal. No, but should he have? Were he being fair, yes. Hannibal fought bravely and cleverly for his Carthaginian people against the Roman state. He lost after a long and devastating war. His defeat was more due to the stupidity of his government than Roman supremacy in the battlefield. He fled into exile. Rome despoiled Carthage and annihilated its people so completely that the entire civilization ceased to exist. Even its fields were poisoned, so that no city could ever be built there again. I know the story well. So let us go back two millennia. The landscape dissolved. Then we were somewhere on earth, at night, in a town that reminded me of paintings done in Egypt. I was sitting with an imposing, dynamic-looking man, in some sort of outdoor tavern. He looked tired, even haggard, but by no means defeated. He smiled at me and raised an eyebrow. Angelica? I asked. Hannibal to you. Look behind you. What do you see? A man with two mugs on a tray. He is adding powder to one of them. Poison? Of course. The assassin came up to us, bowed, gave us our drinks, and then hurried away. He had Norvin's face. Remember, I am Hannibal, said Angelica. If you reach across and fling the contents of my mug into the dust, I may live to raise another army of Rome's enemies. This time I may defeat Rome. Think of what would be gained and lost. I thought. Rome had many accomplishments, but it also had a lot to answer for. But Hannibal suicided to avoid capture and humiliation. You think so? Victors write the histories. I should know. Will it be any better under your rule? I asked. I would like to think so. The Carthaginians were more merchants than conquerors. The figure of Hannibal began raising the poisoned wine to his lips. Without being entirely sure why I did it, I reached across and struck it from his fingers. The scene dissolved into a modern workshop. We were standing beside a workbench, upon which an unusual piston assembly had been dismantled. Powered by a very ordinary steam engine, this piston and valve system can slowly withdraw air from a chamber the size of a small room. It can reduce the atmospheric pressure to one-tenth that at sea level. The pressure at eight miles? Yes. I could dwell within it and have full control of my mind. Do you want me to build it? That is the wrong question, Monsieur Parks. Do you want to build it? I have pled my case. Now you are my judge. What is my sentence? Once more the scene began to dissolve, but this time only blackness followed. We were at four miles when I revived. Breathing was not easy, but a trickle of oxygen seemed to be still issuing from the reactor. Angelica was back to her old vegetative self, sitting on the floor. In my haste to plan the abduction of the balloon, 
I had made no real plans for the return to Earth. While still a few yards from the ground, I released the rope and grapple. It snared a tree in a windbreak. Then the car came to Earth gently in what was actually one of my better landings. I helped Angelica from the car, and pausing only to discard my heavy coat and gloves, I hurried her to a nearby stand of trees. We had come down in a field not far from the edge of London, and I estimated that we had travelled no more than fifteen miles laterally. Gainsley and his men would arrive soon, to fetch Angelica back, and have me dead. My thought was to hide until a large crowd had assembled, for he would not want to kill me in front of witnesses. A pair of farm labourers arrived at the balloon after a few minutes. Although fearful of the huge gas bag at first, they soon began striking poses in front of the wicker car. One even put on my heavy fur coat, as if he had been the aeronaut. It was now that Gainsley arrived, riding hard with his butler, groom, and two other men. My worst fears were justified when he shouted an order and all four of his men produced rifles and fired at the man in my coat. He fell to the ground. His companion raised his hands. It was clear that Gainsley had mistaken the two men for myself and Angelica. He soon realized his error. The man and the woman, where are they? He screamed, dismounting and seizing the surviving laborer by the smock while pressing one of those tiny American percussion cap pistols between his eyes. Dunno, sir, the man answered. Me and Fergus, we found the balloon here. We thought we'd got it until the owner came back. My balloon was stolen by a man who owns that coat. Where is he? Dunno, sir. The coat was on the ground when we arrived. The temptation for Gainsley to kill him was probably near to overwhelming, but by now another horseman was approaching. One death could have been a mistake. A second would send Gainsley to the gallows, barren or not. He ordered his men to dismount and reload as the rider drew up. Oh there, sir. We are pursuing dangerous criminals who stole this balloon, was as much as Gainsley managed to say before the rider produced a pistol and shot him between the eyes. It was at this point that I recognized Northern. Gainsley's four men had not yet managed to reload their Enfield rifles, so they attempted to mob him. They had not realized that he was armed with one of the new pepper box pistols by Cooper of London. It could fire six shots from six barrels in as many seconds, so at close quarters it made one man as effective as six. Two more men were shot down before one of the others used his rifle butt to club Northern from the saddle. He fell, but shot a third while lying on his back in the grass. The survivor raised his hands. "'Mercy, sir! You'd not shoot an unarmed man, would you?' he cried. "'How much mercy did you show me, Monsieur Garard?' asked Norvin, who then shot him down. By now the farm labourer had got to his feet and was running for his life. Norvin calmly took a percussion-lock rifle from his saddle, aimed with smooth professional style, and fired. The side of the man's head burst open as a ball seven-tenths of an inch across did its work. Even at distance I could see the gleam of tears on Norvin's cheeks. He was a good man, being forced to kill. He was a Frenchman killing a Napoleon for the greater good. He probably thought he was saving the world. Knowing only what he did, which of us would not do the same? I lay absolutely still. True, I had my father's flintlock, but I am no flash shot and would have trouble hitting a steam train from the platform. Norvin had killed a man with every shot and still had one bullet remaining in his six-barrel pistol. Apparently satisfied that he had killed Gainsley and his men, and that Angelica and myself were the dead farm labourers, he mounted and rode away. We remained hidden in amid the trees until more people arrived at the balloon and discovered the massacre. 
When the authorities arrived, I emerged and played the part of a yokel who had come late to the scene, and of course Angelica was quite convincing as a village idiot. It was no great effort for us to slip away and walk back to London. That was two years ago, and since then I have prospered. I have my own workshop, where a steam engine chugs night and day to maintain the world's only altitude chamber. It is the size of a small room, and within it lives Angelica, in conditions of pressure that can be found at eight miles. Otherwise, it is furnished very comfortably in red and green leather upholstery, Regency furniture, a small library, a desk where she draws diagrams of things for me to build, and a workbench where she builds tiny intricate metal machines, like surreal insects with wings of blue and silver lace. Food and drink passes in through an equalization chamber. What comes out is mainly diagrams. I am building a void craft. The thing resembles a streamlined steam train with no wheels. It stands on grasshopper-like legs, driven by pistons plated in gold. In place of a cabin there is an airtight double chamber with portholes. One side is for Angelica, the other is mine, and they are at very divergent atmospheric pressures. I tell the artisans that help with construction that it is a new type of armoured balloon, and in their ignorance they believe me. The parts were made at a thousand different workshops in Britain, continental Europe, and even America. It is a beautiful thing with a body of brass pipes, steel tubes, crystal mechanisms mounted in gaslight enclosures, and riveted boilers in which nothing boils. Even in its incomplete state, it is awesome in its performance. Last night we rolled back the movable roof of the workshop, ascended into the night, and looked down upon the gaslit smoky haze of London in comfort from eight miles. How easily the frontier becomes the commonplace. Angelica spoke within my thoughts, asking whether I wish to fly on to the moon, but I was not ready for that. Like lungs acclimatizing to the air at great altitudes, my mind needed time to adjust to such wonders. Currently I am having four quite different engines built to add to our craft. To me they make no sense, but Angelica insists that they will work. The clever and industrious Mr. Brunel has contracts to make some of the parts. If only he knew that he was really building boilers to confine matter more black than soot that has no real existence as we know it. The electrical experimenter Faraday is supplying many of our electromagnetic and electrostatic controls, while the jewellers Pennington and Bailey fabricate crystals to almost conduct electricity, and Haley Brothers watchmakers build control clockwork that they do not understand. The void craft of rivets and iron plate will be able to travel to the stars, even though my mind cannot comprehend the distances in any more than the most general sense. It will be armed with a tube being built in two sections in the workshops of Glasgow and Sheffield, a tube that will one day enclose a fragment of a star's heart. With it, one can vaporise a warship at ten miles, using not one thousandth of the power available. Angelica will be the captain, navigator and gunner. Yet when she leaves, I will be with her. After all, what engine can work without a humble stoker and oiler? Norvin was right in a sense. Angelica is a Napoleon from an unimaginably advanced race, and Earth is the Elba where she was exiled. Norvin also feared her, but in this he was mistaken. It is with worlds too distant to comprehend that Angelica has her quarrel. After all, why would a Napoleon want to conquer a little Elba, when so much more is within reach? <laughs> And there you go. Don't forget, copyright is Sean McMullen, but it's just giving you a little taste of what's in store with the Hugo Awards. Don't forget, voting is now, I think I think it is anyways. 
You know, if you think about voting for Sean, oh, oh, oh the good ship sofa, please do that. There you go, that is Starship Sofa's show. I hope you enjoyed it. Please do look in next week. Until then, I would just like to say good night from me. Will our heroes survive this terrible ordeal? Can they win through with their integrity unscathed? Can they escape without completely compromising their honour and artistic judgement? Tune in next week for the next exciting instalment of Starship Sofa. A valuation procedure initiated. Shuttle set for launch. Airlock will be opened in 3, 2, 1.